We are excited to be joined by pastor and author Nick Tucker to talk about his brand new book, 12 Things God Can't Do, and how they can help you sleep at night. What a great title. Welcome and thanks for joining us, Nick. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you. Nick, before we get stuck into the questions, please feel free to take a moment to introduce yourself. Hi, um, sure. My name's uh, Nick. I'm a pastor of a church called Bishop Hannington Memorial Church, which is in Hove on the south coast of England, just around the corner from David, actually. And um, been here about six months before that, pastored in uh, Birmingham and taught uh, at a seminary in London. Uh, I'm married to Sam and we've got three fantastic teenage kids and a slightly wild dog. That's excellent. You look like you've got a good library behind you there as well, Nick, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm um I'm very blessed in that in that regard. What's your what's your favorite title if you had to pick one? Uh, Twelve things that <laughs> very good. <laughs> I think probably um Athanasius is in the on the incarnation. Right, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Ah, brilliant. Well, congratulations on writing your book, Nick. I really, really enjoyed reading it. Give us a general overview of the book, and then we'll drill, drill down into the details a little bit later. Thank you. So the, the basic idea of the book is we take 12 of God's attributes and uh, put them in a, in a way that shows how God is so different from and so much greater than us, uh, uh, so that we can learn to put our trust in him and um, uh, to put ourselves in his hands, knowing that we're safe there, which means that we can uh, sleep <laughs> safely at night. Yeah, um, yeah. But one of the things uh, as well is is that uh, because those um, attributes of God are so sort of far beyond us and so kind of wonderful, uh, that one of the things that I think comes to people's minds is, well, Jesus is God and, you know, he can do these things. Like, let's say the first thing we talk about in the book is, you know, Jesus sleeps, even though God doesn't sleep. So yeah. trying to understand how it is that Jesus, who is truly God, is able to do things that God can't do and how he did those things for our salvation. So it's kind yeah. of mixing up, trying to talk about God's being uh, and sort of blow our minds with how wonderful that is. But then also to to talk about how our salvation comes through uh, God finding ways to do things that God can't do. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Unlike humans, God cannot learn because he doesn't need to. Tell us why this is so and why this is also good news for us, Nick. Well, and the, the sort of illustration I use in the book, or one of them, is the idea of uh, uh, here in uh, in South England, where we don't get as much rain as they do get up north. Um, often people keep uh, in their gardens kind of big barrels to fill with rainwater so they can water their garden when there's the inevitable hosepipe ban. And um, uh, I, I sort of suggest... You know, think about you know a, a great big kind of water barrel that you might have in your garden, uh, and uh, reasons why you might not be able to add any more water to it, and it could be because it's cracked or because you know it's blocked and water can't get in. Um, but it could also be theoretically one possible reason that you couldn't add any more water to your barrel would be that it already contains all the water in the universe, uh, and um, so there is literally no more water to add. I mean, that would be a very big uh, barrel and much too big for my garden. But um, that's what God's knowledge is like, is it, there is there is absolutely no knowable thing that God doesn't already know. Uh, and so he can't learn because there's nothing new for him to learn. Uh, and also he lives outside of time. Uh, so um, 
he doesn't he can't even learn by reflecting on things because he already knows everything in every possible relationship to itself and doesn't move from one thing to the next so um which is a way of really thinking about it, how god's knowledge is not just bigger than ours but completely different from ours uh, and it in fact leads us to uh, the quite extraordinary conclusion um that uh that whilst we know things because they're true uh, things are true because god knows them so uh the, the order of knowing is completely backwards things only exist because they exist in the mind of god at first which is a kind of hard thing to get your head around uh, but that's quite a good thing because god's quite hard to get your head around yeah 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 very good one of the mysteries of the incarnation is Jesus being both fully God and fully man. And we're somehow yeah. able to subdue these attributes. And we see this in verses like Luke 2, 52. Um, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Hmm. What's the correct way for us to understand um, passages like this, Nick? <laughs> That's such a deadly question because it's, it's you know, it took the church 350 years to find a way of talking about it that, that really made sense. Um but I think that the sort of shorthand is to say that um, to, to understand who Jesus is, you need to understand that he is truly fully God. And that doesn't change. That doesn't go away. But he is also truly fully human and that his divine nature and his human nature aren't sort of mashed together, uh, but they stay distinct from each other, united by his person, the person of the eternal son. So that. um as a man, Jesus is ignorant and learns and grows and develops. But as God, he genuinely knows everything and never, never loses that. Uh, and that those two things are simultaneously true of Jesus. Um, and I think what basically the brilliant breakthrough that came with um, the Council of Chalcedon uh, in the fifth century was that the church stopped trying to draw a mental picture of how that sort of fits together and just said, well, these are the two things these two things are true in scripture uh, and we believe them both to be true of, of jesus and, and we mustn't sort of try and sort of smash the natures into each other and make make something else because that you lose everything um so the correct way to understand it is that he is truly fully a human being and truly fully god but that his human nature remains a true human nature and doesn't become a sort of slightly more divine human nature than everyone else's yeah yeah brilliant there, there are some popular churches in america at the moment i'm there to teach something called the kenosis theory um which is where god mm. empties himself of his divinity so that therefore everything that he did um is then you know in terms of miracles is then achievable for us today tell it tell us about that if you can Nick, yeah. and what are the risks involved with that well, I think that the, the big risk for it is that um, one of the biggest problems that the early church faced when it came to talk about Jesus was um, treating him as if he was just like us uh, in the sense that, um, you know, treating Jesus as a Christian was one of the first heresies. Uh, it's called adoptionism. Sorry, that's a slightly provocative way of putting it. But, um, you know, Jesus didn't need a saviour. Uh, he wasn't a sinner. He didn't have a sinful human nature. Um, you know, he didn't have original sin. Uh, he was uh, truly a human being, but uh, he came in order to redeem us, not to be redeemed. So straight away, you've got a massive difference. Um, 
and uh, i think the danger is if you um if you go down that line you end up making salvation the way of imitating christ rather than putting your faith in him right yeah 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 it's helpful having a god that cannot be surprised by the future is extremely comforting tell us about that nick and how does god's experience Hmm. of time differ to ours well i mentioned before um that God doesn't inhabit time. Um, so if you think about time as being an aspect of the creation, that God makes time and space together, so that the first word of the Bible is in the beginning, you know, that's the moment that time starts. Uh, well, then, um, you know, time is not part of God's being any more than spaces. We know he doesn't have a body. We know he doesn't inhabit space in the way that we do, uh, which means that... Um, when it comes to God's knowledge of his creation, he can know the end from the beginning. He can know the whole thing uh, all at once, although to say all at once is to be confusing because that sounds like time. Um, but we don't, we can't get outside of time. We can't think without time. So uh, we'll allow ourselves that, that sort of slight kind of uh, irregularity. Um, and, and so God's relationship to time is very different from mine because I go through it. He sees it all in one go, uh, which means that the, the future is no more hidden from him than the present or the past. They're all just as real and immediate to God uh, as each other. And and the huge encouragement of that is, uh, first of all, whenever I act, whenever I do something, I do it on the basis of, I think I know what's going to happen if I do that. If I do this, then these things will happen. But I don't know. And I mean, I imagine, David, that like me, there have been moments in your life when you've done something thinking that X will result. And actually what happens is Y. Uh, And and you really wish it hadn't. And you really wish you hadn't done the thing you did. Well, God's not like that. He he knows perfectly what every action will result in. Uh, We're preaching through at the moment in the evenings. We're preaching through the story of Joseph. And you see how right at the beginning of the story, God has it all planned out. Uh, he knows exactly what will happen as a result of this dream given to Joseph will be the salvation that comes to the brothers. But he knows that, you know, attempted murder and slavery and lies and deception and all these things, all these complicated ways that people are trying to make what they want to happen, happen. Actually, God stands above all of that. His intention is to bless and to save. And he does it. Uh, and so I suppose what 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 it comes down to is that the, the one who is driving history the one who is driving the universe the one who has the steering wheels in his hands is not driving blind he knows exactly what he's doing uh, in a way that we can't imagine and so we can completely trust him and no matter how bad things get actually you can put your hand in god's hand and say lead me forward because i know that you know the way uh, so that's one thing but another thing is when he saved me, you know, th- there was nothing that was coming up in my life that was a huge surprise to him. You know, not only was there nothing hidden in my heart, one of the one of the, my kind of great fears, you know, is what well, I suppose it's true for all of us is is that there are things that if you knew this about me, you really wouldn't like me very much. Right. Yeah, 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 right, right. But, but yeah, but when when God when God came into my life, it's not like he there were things he didn't know and some nasty surprises for him. Uh, and the same is true of my my whole life he he knew it all and somehow through it all was planning to bless me so and to good. bless others and yeah. and that's amazing isn't it yeah brilliant that's so helpful nick thank you for that we know that scripture doesn't contradict itself and knowing that god knows everything including what is going to happen in the future 
how would we explain a verse like Genesis chapter six, verse six? And that's, and the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, in terms of the how question, uh, the first thing is to say that we have to let scripture interpret scripture. Uh, and, you know, when, when, when the Bible tells us very clearly about God's knowledge of the future and other things, you know, those other verses, you have to say, well, I've got to read that in the light of this and and, and see that those right. those things can both be true in some way. Uh, and I think that the, the way I, you know, the, the way the sort of, you know, Christians have traditionally understood this and the way I, I think I, I understand it is that God, God is speaking to us in his word in a way that we can understand. He's talking to us in categories that, that we can understand. And so he hates evil. And he's telling us how much he hates evil and you know what his response to evil is which is you know he is going to bring destruction on a corrupt world he is going to bring judgment so you know what does that look like for you or me if you know how, how would i express that you know I, you know I, I wish it wasn't like this <laughs> is yeah. do, do, do you see what i mean yeah. and and so yeah. um you know i think god is talking to us in our own categories if he talked to us from the point of view of if he tried to express everything in kind of precise philosophical terms uh, that that fitted exactly his experience of his being, well, we wouldn't understand a word of it, would we? We couldn't we wouldn't be able to begin to understand. So we have to accept that, you know, for us to understand him, he has to sort of bend down and speak to us in our language. Yeah, yeah, that's good. How can Christians be comforted by knowing that God cannot change his mind? Um, well, I suppose the first thing is, you know, in Hebrews, we're, 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 we're sort of pointed back to, to, you know, the prophecy that you're a priest in the order of Melchizedek, you know, God has, 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 has promised this and he will not change his mind. So that the promises that God has made about Jesus and to Jesus about the church are promises that God not only will keep but can't not keep because he can't change his mind he's made his decisions but um so in the evenings we're going through joseph in the mornings we're going through the seven letters to the seven churches in revelation and so i've been thinking about balaam a bit recently uh, and that in numbers 22 to 24 uh, that that sort of description of how balaam is employed to curse israel but can't and whenever he tries to utter a curse, it comes out as a blessing. And then the second time he tries, he actually says, God is not a man that he could change his mind. And it's that thing of God is so committed to his promises. God will not change his mind because he cannot change his mind. So, um, you know, you, Israel is safe. God will bless his people because that's what he, you know, he's not going to suddenly go, oh, do you know what? I, I thought about blessing them, but I feel, I, I feel quite cursy today. You know, that's not going to happen. Right. That's not how, how God is. He is completely reliable, completely consistent, yeah. completely trustworthy. Yeah. When we consider that, Nick, then how, how should we view prayer and requests that we make of God when we do so? Um, I suppose this comes back to the, the thing of reading scripture with scripture. Um, and lots of the problems in terms of doctrine that the church has had over the centuries uh, have been down to the fact that um, people latch onto one thing that is true and then try to read all of reality on the basis of that one thing being true. 
So uh, the Arians who rejected the divinity of Jesus, they said they, they took some of the things that we've got in the book about, you know, God is, you know, he can't change. He can't learn all that kind of thing. And then they point to Jesus and say, well, he did it. He can't be God, can he? Um, and, you know, there's there's that sort of attempt to be so, so consistent to one idea that you actually start to contradict other things that are in scripture. And you could do that with God's knowledge, couldn't you? You could say, well, God knows the future. Why would I pray? And the obvious answer to that question is, well, God tells you to pray. Right. <laughs> he frequently tells you to pray. And not only that, but he tells you that he answers prayer. So yeah. Yeah. I, I think about Moses and um, when he's commanded to go and, you know, talk to Pharaoh and, 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 and the curses come. And God says to Moses, tell him to ask you to pray for him. And when you pray for him, I will heal him. <laughs> Uh, and uh you know that that's the world we live in a, a god in which okay god doesn't inhabit time but we do and he chooses astonishingly to involve us in his work in his world and prayer is one of the i would say the primary way in which we get to be involved in what god is doing in his world um and and so you know, we could say, oh, well, it doesn't feel consistent. If he knows the future, I'm not going to change his mind by praying. No, you're not going to change his mind by praying. Of course you're not. And that's really good because he knows much better than you. And nonetheless, he said, I will act in answer to your prayer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, so it, it's one of those. Um, there's this there's this great. Uh, I can't remember the quote exactly offhand. It's in the book from Hilary of Poitiers, where he talks about how um, how people think that if if they can't understand it, it can't be true. Uh, and but he says, you know, God is a fitting witness concerning Himself, and we do well to submit ourselves to God's own view of Himself. So yeah. we know these things to be true. God tells us, "I don't change my mind." He tells us, "I love to answer your prayers." Great. Both of those things yeah. are really comforting to me. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. You write about our holy God being unable to view sin. Tell us about that, Nick. And how do we reconcile that with being filled by the Holy Spirit? Oh. What a brilliant question. I, I, I love that. So, um, you know, Habakkuk, amongst others, tell us, tells us, you know, says of God, you know, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You know, what has light to do with darkness? You know, God, God absolutely, <clears throat> excuse me, God absolutely detests evil. He can't stand it. He can't bear to look at it. Um, and, you know, that's one of the really important things that's, that's there in the book. And then yet yeah, you see Jesus comes and, you know, lives with God's people, but right the way through scripture from Genesis three, where hum humanity sort of falls out of relationship with God all the way through, there's this kind of tension of how can a holy God live with a sinful people? And um, that through the old Testament, that's done through a, a combination of, of sort of sacrifice and distance, you know, the, the sacrifices uh, are, are important in, in kind of keeping the people sort of close to God and purifying them. Uh, and yet, you know, there's distance as well you know, in the tabernacle and the temple, you know, that there's this sort of series of kind of places of, of increasing holiness. And, you know, only by being a, a, a sort of person who's set apart and then, you know, have particular sacrifices made for you. Can you get closer and closer until there's the holy of holies where, you know, only the high priest can enter and only once a year. Um, so absolutely, you know, God is far too holy to have anything to do with us on our own terms. And I think that's why the first time you hear the gospel being preached to a non-Christian audience in the Bible in Acts, what's offered is not you can get to go to heaven when you die. It's you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. 
because the work of Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice that he made is so perfect and so complete that you and I are washed clean in a way that means that we're fit to be the temples. No, no longer do we have to go to the temple and, and sort of be at a distance. Now we're the temple and God himself lives in us by his Holy Spirit. Uh, and that is testimony to the power of what Jesus did on the cross. Um, and that's thrilling. Isn't that thrilling? I just think it's amazing, really. Yeah, yeah. We, we've hardly touched the sides of what you cover in the book, uh, Nick. Just give us an overview of some of the other things that you speak about that God can't do. Um, I try, try to remember. I mean, one of them is, is kind of related to, to the stuff about God's knowledge and, uh, and things that God can't lie. He can't speak a, you know anything that's not true, um, which, again, is a huge comfort. God's not going to deceive you. He's, uh, you know, but he, it also kind of hints at how sort of pure and perfect he is and, um uh god can't be seen um which again is is one of, for me is is one of those things that you think i don't i don't know whether that's so amazing and yet paul structures the whole of his first letter to timothy around that idea that god can't be seen so why is that well it shows just the glory and transcendence of god uh it causes us to to wonder and it causes us to wonder particularly at the fact that in jesus and, and this is the very heart of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 16. He appeared. That's the mystery of godliness. He appeared. The invisible God became visible for you. That, that's an extraordinary thing. And um, God can't die. Well, you know, the, the undying God died for you uh, in, in Jesus. And, and yet at the same time, you know, because he has life in himself, he can give life to all who come to him. Um, he can't be lonely because... Uh, God is at Trinity. He is three in one uh, from eternity. God is in his nature relationship, uh, which helps to explain how we experience ourselves, because we cannot be ourselves unless we're in relationships of love. We, 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 we cannot be alone. We're not meant to be alone. It's the first thing that's not good in the Bible, isn't it? Is it's not good for man right, to be alone. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yet um, because God is Trinity in his very being, he's sort of mutually uh fulfilled self-giving relationships with other person-centered love um because that's true of who he is he's he's a god who doesn't have any needs so he loves you not because he needs your love but just out of the overflow of his own goodness so he you know it's not a kind of it's as as an american friend put it to me recently um our relationship with god is not codependent <laughs> Right, right. You know, and that's just amazing because God loves me because he loves me, not because of something he needs to get from me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. So good. How can knowing all of these things help a Christian sleep better at night, Nick? I think there are a number of things. One is that it is just great, isn't it? But to put your head on the pillow and, and know that the world's not going to fall apart because you take a rest. You know, Jesus says, doesn't he? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, and that's at the heart of, of God's promise to his people is we get to share in his rest. And um, we can do that because I don't have to be in control. I don't have to be alert. I don't have to be on my guard because God has got it. I can trust him. So I think the better I know him, the more overwhelmed I am at the wonder of his goodness and his beauty uh, and, and, and just holiness then actually the less i'm kind of dependent on my, my own being awake and alert 
to keep me safe and to yeah. um, keep the world spinning on its axis. So, yeah. um, you know, I think I think that's that's delightful. I think I think you know, knowing that you know God is not fickle, that He doesn't change, you know, all of those things. Um, but I, I think also for me, one of the one of the things that really blows my mind is this idea that Jesus found a way to do so many of the things that God can't do out of love for me and out of love for you. And, and, and that in doing that, he's actually shown me how much God loves me. And that also gives enormous rest, doesn't it? I, I've, I spend so much of my life, I, 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 pe- people are very different. Um, and, and we've all got our own kind of um, ways of, uh, you know, living unhealthily in the world. But one of mine is I, I desperately want people to like me and accept me. You know, um, and my wife gets really sick of it. If I do something, you know, helpful around the house, and then I sort of go to, oh, he pleases me, you know, like a little puppy. And, um, you know, for someone like me who goes through life feeling like that, to know that God loves me unconditionally, you know, that his love, I love because he first loved me. You know, his, you know, my relationship with him is totally based on his goodness and his kindness and the overflow of his, uh, of his love. That, that's such a relief. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which it's comforting. I, I mean, I, I hesitate to say read the book, but. <laughs> <laughs> read the book. Yeah, exactly that. If we have anyone watching or listening who are not Christians, how would you want them to process these 12 things that God can't do, Nick? Um, many years ago uh, in Oxford, I grew up in Oxford, and um, there, there was this sort of story that went round about um one of the college chaplains who was quite well-known theologian. Uh, and he uh, he used to, at the start of uh, every academic year, he would invite all the freshers to come and see him in his office as chaplain of the college. And you can imagine what, you know, a lot of these Oxford students sort of, and they would sort of come in and they say, I don't know why I'm here. Why have I got to come see the chaplain? I don't even believe in God. Uh, and he would rather surprise them because he would then say, hey, well, okay, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they would tell him and he would say, that's fantastic. I don't believe in that God either. Let me tell you about the God I do believe in. Uh, and I think um, that the frequently we, we dismiss a God who is not there. and that, But the God who is there, the God who's revealed himself, you know, most notably in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, but through his scriptures over, you know, 3000 years, um, he is better and bigger and more wonderful than you have ever imagined and actually i think if you begin to look into what scripture says about what the bible says about this god uh, he will surprise you uh, and i think he will delight you and cause you to wonder uh, at how good he is so um why not look why not look into it and just see uh, whether um actually you've been busy believing in the wrong god not believing in the wrong god hmm. yeah do you have any plans in the future to write any more books? Uh, well, um, there's a big book that I'm sort of putting off uh, submitting for publication, um, which is on the stuff I did my PhD on. So that's kind of in the background. But books like this one, um, I was talking to a friend the other day, so my my sort of academic work was around the incarnation 
so maybe a, a book that's sort of taking some of the things that are in the little interludes in the book and actually just expanding them out a bit. That might be a thing to do. I'm there's probably a book on sin as well at some point, but maybe not next. And I'd also I've become really interested in the idea of sacrifice in the New Testament. And I'd quite like to write a a little book about what what, what does sacrifice mean now in the life of a Christian? So, yeah, brilliant. Well, well, we'll look forward to all of those, uh, Lord willing, Nick. Thank you. Before we before we let you go, it's been an absolutely fascinating half an hour. Thank you so much for your time, Nick. But do you have any closing you. thoughts? Um, I mean, other than to say thank you very much for, for having me. It's been great to chat and I've really enjoyed it. And um, I just think, I think my my kind of, whenever I talk about this, I think I'm just aware of just how far beyond me it is really to speak adequately of the things of God. He is just so much better than any of us could ever articulate. Um, but I suppose that's that's my kind of my concluding reflection is isn't God wonderful and isn't the gospel better than anything you could have imagined for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. What a way to finish the interview, Nick. Nick, I think you've avoided joining Twitter. Am I right? You're not on social media, are you, as far as I know? I was I was on Twitter for years. I was a very early adopter and I absolutely loved it. And it was great fun. Um, and then um, I watched the Netflix sort of docu-movie, The Social Net Social Dilemma, was it? Uh, oh, I watched okay. it with my kids. And I, and I just, partly wanting to set an example and partly yeah, yeah. being slightly scared that having a supercomputer pointed at my brain that was cleverer than I am and uh, yeah. manipulating me uh so i came off i came off twitter and and, and facebook um which i know means that i'm very unplugged from i can't i'm not very good at selling my book because i can't i can't sort of tweet about it or anything but um <laughs> it's good for me i think yeah no absolutely so what's your church website then if anyone wants to keep in touch with what you're doing nick so the church is bishop hannington memorial church and and it's bhmc.org.uk Okay, excellent. Well, we'll get that link and make sure that it's in the description of wherever you're watching or thanks listening to this interview. Nick, thanks again for your time. Really enjoyed it. It's been great to chat. Thanks so much.